I want to start out this week talking about NFTs or non-fungible tokens because I don't want my views on this topic to be misconstrued. I did a blog post this week about digital collectibles and how reminiscent a lot of the stuff we're seeing is of the Beanie Baby bubble from 1999. And I even threw in (laughs) Dutch tulip mania. I, I pulled out all the stops just to make the point that eventually what happens with these types of booms and collectibles is that opportunists come in and create too much product. And when the prices stop rising as quickly as they were, because everybody has more than enough stuff that they're able to buy, these types of booms tend to fade away. That does not mean, however, that I am in any way, shape, or form bearish or dismissive of the potential for NFT to be a very important technology and even reorganize some of the ways in which services and goods and IP are bought and sold and even invested in because I am not an expert, number one, in the technology itself. I'm reading about it all the time. But I also think even if I were an expert, that doesn't mean that I would be able to definitively say where the technology would be going. And NFT, and I guess the the most popular example of this would be the Ethereum blockchain-based NBA Top Shot uh, phenomenon is very, very young and very early. And I want to share something that a venture capitalist wrote on his blog 10 years ago, January of 2010, that I think is every bit as true today as it was when he wrote it a decade ago. In fact, it may have even become more uh, vital to understand now, before I even get into this, I'm talking about Chris Dixon, and Chris is a partner at A16Z, which is everybody's favorite venture capitalist thought leadership firm. That's uh, Ben Horowitz, Mark Andreessen. Uh, they have great podcasts. They're all over Clubhouse, chatting it up, and uh, they have been early investors in some of the most important companies and technologies that exist in our world today. So Chris Dixon – is a partner there and you know he's been a personal investor in companies you've heard of everything from Kickstarter to Stripe, Warby Parker, Pinterest, Stack Overflow, etc. So he was saying in 2010 and and keep in mind 2010 this is pre Facebook IPO. This is pre Instagram. I mean Instagram exists but Facebook doesn't own it yet and probably it has a million or two users uh at the time and Facebook in in 07, 08 looks like a toy. Instagram in 2010, 2011 looks like a toy. These are two of the most important businesses on earth right now. And not just important in terms of how much money they make and they make a fortune, but just important in terms of the impact that they've had on every industry all over the world and how people communicate. So, And they were toys when he was writing this. So this is Chris and – He's leaning heavily on Clay Christensen, and many of you know uh, Clay Christensen's disruptive technology theory. Uh, Christensen wrote The Innovator's Dilemma, which is like the Bible in, uh, in Silicon Valley. So this is what Chris had to say, quote, the reason big new things sneak by incumbents is that the next big thing always starts out being dismissed as a toy. 
This is one of the main insights of Clay Christensen's disruptive technology theory. This theory starts with the observation that technologies tend to get better at a faster rate than users' needs increase. From this simple insight follows all kinds of interesting conclusions about how markets and products change over time. Disruptive technologies are dismissed as toys because when they're first launched, they undershoot user needs. The first telephone could only carry voices a mile or two. The leading telco of the time, Western Union, passed on acquiring the phone because they didn't see how it could possibly be useful to businesses and railroads, which were their primary customers at the time. What they failed to anticipate was how rapidly telephone technology and infrastructure would improve. Technology adoption is usually nonlinear due to so-called complementary network effects. The same was true of mainframe companies looking at the PC or what they used to call the microcomputer and also how modern telecom companies looked at Skype. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other examples that we won't get into. Here, this is Chris Dixon. This does not mean every product that looks like a toy will turn out to be the next big thing. To distinguish toys that are disruptive from toys that will remain just toys, you need to look at products as processes. Obviously, products get better in as much as the designer adds features, but this is a relatively weak force. Much more powerful are external forces. Microchips getting cheaper. Bandwidth becoming ubiquitous, mobile devices getting smarter, etc. For a product to be disruptive, it needs to be designed to ride these changes up the utility curve. Okay, so in other words, you build something, it starts off as whatever it is, it's underwhelming, but the external forces, um, so in the case of a lot of the technology that we use these days, cloud is a great example, you get a lot more resources upon which to build out that technology. When you think about these things as processes um, and, and you think about network effects, that's how things that start off as toys evolve and ultimately in some cases find their use cases as more people adopt them and the use cases get more critical and more serious and more profitable. So I think that's a really good heuristic through which to view the very, very early days of non-fungible tokens. And just this idea that we may have a new disruptive technology that allows us to pay for things in different ways. So an artist, for example, comes out with new music, and this is actually happening with the band Kings of Leon, and they decide they want to release this new music to their fans in the form of digital files, right, able to be downloaded, but there'll be a finite amount of it and there will be authentication necessary. So it's not bootlegs of, of other people's files, but you actually own the music that you paid for from that artist. And it's this system of tokens that make it non-fungible, meaning you cannot exchange a Kings of Leon digital downloaded album for some other artist's album, right? It's, it's unique. It's numbered. It's verified that you own it, right? So this is the kind of thing that we don't know how much adoption we'll see, um, but the earliest version of this is, I think, like the most popular earliest version. You're seeing some art being digitized, right? You're, you're seeing like um, – you're seeing the Top Shot stuff, which is clips of NBA players slam dunking basketballs. I mean nobody's taking that seriously as like – 
you know, this is going to be a huge investable asset class, except for a very few, a, a very small group of people who are on the cutting edge of new technology. They seem to be really bullish about it. And look, they were very bullish about other things that didn't turn into anything. Google Glass is a really great example. There was a time when uh, the Andreessen gang looked at Google Glass like it was the next big thing and it kind of fizzled out. So it's too early, I think, to have a very strong opinion about whether or not this technology will go from being, you know, just people trading clips of NBA highlights on a on a blockchain and be a very obscure thing. We don't know if this will escape that prism and find uses elsewhere. And if it does, it would make sense that it would start with sports and and entertainment and areas where pretty much everyone is a consumer um, before it gets into areas like, for example, financial services or or the stock market, where yes, there's still a lot of consumers, but it's a it's a smaller group and a more specialized use case. But everybody buys music or pays to stream music. Everybody watches sports. So it makes sense that something disruptive would start off that way and then ultimately move up the chain in terms of being useful for other things. So I think we we want to not, you know, fly off the handle and and go all in like this is it. This is the biggest thing ever because that can look silly in hindsight, but we also don't want to be dismissive and say this isn't something that has the potential to be highly disruptive and important. So uh, I like to keep my eyes and ears open. I like to keep learning. I like to keep talking to people. And that's what I would recommend that you do um, before having a fully formed, very staunch, very hardened position on this particular technology or any particular technologies that come along. All right. So I wanted to make sure I mentioned that to you. And, uh, you know, Batnick's, Batnick's trading, um, trading these NBA top shots and he did a really great blog post. And if you prefer to listen rather than read, check out the Goldmine podcast where you can find Batnick stuff and, and, and all of the Ritholtz mafia putting our best blog posts into an audio format. And there are five to 10 minute episodes and you could just let them all play in a row or you can pick and choose which episodes you want to listen to, but you get the writer of the blog post actually talking about the, the, the blog post they wrote uh, in their own voice. So it's very cool. And we're having a lot of fun producing that. I also want to mention rising rates. A bunch of Fed heads uh, spoke this week. Obviously, the move to 1.5% interest rates on 10-year treasuries is rapid, happened very suddenly. Uh, treasury rates bottomed last August at about 50 basis points, and so now they've tripled. But I would just point out they are at 1.5% at the low end of a trading range that they had been in previously for 10 years. So the aberration was 50 basis points in August. The aberration is not now at one and a half basis points. This does not dismantle the stock market or completely reorganize the entire world. It just it's, – it's rapid, but it's not life-changing. And again, we're back at the low end of a trading range that had been in existence for a decade. I'd also point out prior to the pandemic taking hold of, of, of the globe in um, February of 2020 – the yield on the 10-year was 2%. In the winter of 2018, the yield on the 10-year was 3%. So even in the last few years, we've seen rates at this present level or higher. And it wasn't aberrant. 
you know, it wasn't life changing or world changing. It was just a difference in conditions. Now, a lot of the commentary is what does this mean for your portfolio, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I would say a couple of things. The first thing is it definitely starts to blow up some of the some of the trades that were predicated on greater fool. Like at 0% interest rates, it makes sense that the whole market turns into a big chase for stock prices that are going to go up and current income being of lesser importance. But when there's actually a risk-free rate that can be earned on bonds, bonds become a better, more of a competition for dollars. So it makes sense that this week and a little bit last week, we've seen a big sell-off in the absurd multiple high growth technology and consumer discretionary stocks that had worked so well last year because now cash isn't, you know, money isn't free anymore. It's almost free, but it's not free. So that makes sense to me. The other thing I'd say is if you own bonds in your portfolio, you actually paradoxically should be rooting for higher rates. Even if that means your principal drops in the short term, because remember, Bonds come in as rates go up and vice versa, right? So if if bonds are coming down in in price and value uh, as rates are going up, that's a negative short term for the bonds that you hold. But longer term, even intermediate term, it's the only way you're going to make any money. Because if you think about a bond's return, we're talking about high-quality bonds, so AAA corporates and government bonds, municipal bonds, you could pretty much set your watch to the fact that your next 10 years average annual return is going to be a pretty close match with the starting yield that you buy your bonds at. So if the 10 year is yielding less than 1%, you're probably going to earn less than 1% on an average annual basis over the next 10 years if that's a, a, a bond with a duration of 10 years. So if we know that that relationship is like 95% historically accurate, and you're going to have bonds in your portfolio for the foreseeable future, again, paradoxically, rising bond rates with falling bond prices actually does you a favor. It helps you. And the key, of course, is rebalancing and continuing to add to your portfolio. So I I think that's really all that needs to be said about it right now. I, I don't subscribe to the theory that we're moments away from an inflationary you know, meltdown or anything like that. I don't think that's what one and a half percent 10 year treasury rates are telling us. I think what rates are telling us is that uh, the market is ahead of where the Fed thinks the economy is. Market thinks the economy is rebounding faster uh, than the Fed thinks it is, or perhaps it's the recovery is stronger than the Fed currently thinks it is. And so you have overnight rates at, at zero and you've got a, a 10 year yield at one and a half percent. And you've got bank stocks uh, leading the market. So there's a reason. Banks make money now. So this is a a change in environment. It's not a better or a worse environment. It's just different conditions. And I think people should probably calm down. And I want to point to Ben Carlson, who wrote a terrific thing on a wealth of common sense.com. That's his blog. Ben is the head of institutional asset management at Ritholtz. And again, you can find Ben's post also in an audio format on the Goldmine podcast, if that's how you prefer to get your information. But Ben points out that going back, data going back to the 1950s, in 13 of the last 15 quote unquote rising rate environments, uh, stocks have have positive returns. So the idea that stocks can work while uh, bond yields are rising 
should not be controversial. For some reason, it seems to be in the media these days. And my my job, my role is to make sure you understand the truth and are armed with that truth when you come into contact with the nonsense. And that way you can make better decisions for yourself. And oftentimes the best decision is not to do anything. Um, so I wanted to make sure we got to that. Uh, my guest today is amazing. This guy basically, he's like, I guess he's like a, a 20 year old, tw- 20 years older version of me, give or take. And he just basically takes over the podcast. Like he takes over. I'm, I'm interviewing him, LOL. And he just takes over and there's nothing really I can do about it. But I just sit back and I, I let him go because he's super entertaining, legendary trader, uh, very smart, very caring, just an, an all around wonderful human being. His name is Mark Fisher. Mark is the founder and CEO of MBF Clearing Corp. In addition to his leadership role at MBF, Marcus is just an all-around influential member of the futures industry at large. This is from his bio, um, globally respected professional trader, guest speaker at industry conferences, best-selling author of The Logical Trader, Applying a Method to the Madness. And uh, Mark's been around a long time. His first job was at age 12. He was a runner on the floor of the Comex. And Mark attended University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School and uh that's where he earned his MBA, and he's been a trader ever since. Mark is, I think, one of the most knowledgeable people when it comes to what's happening in the markets, what are traders actually doing, because he's sitting in the middle of a lot of that activity. And so I, I had him on the show to talk specifically about some of the stuff he's seeing in different commodity markets, in the stock market, et cetera, some of the things he's hearing. I think you'll get a lot out of it. And I want to thank my friend Joe Terranova, who's also uh, in the mix today. And you'll hear a little bit from Joe. And Joe's been on the show before. And Terranova got his start learning and working with uh, working with Mark, as did many other successful traders I know. And so this is going to be a very heavy dose of Long Island shit. <laughs> Mark, Mark and Joe are, are from the Five Towns, which is about 10 minutes from where I live on the South shore of Long Island. And you'll hear that we all have the same accents and, and, uh, and voice inflections. But again, Mark's just going to steamroll over me and you guys are going to love it. You'll laugh, you'll cry, everything in between. So stick around for that last item of housekeeping before we get into Mark later, I guess you'll be listening to this possibly on Friday. Um, but every Friday at 3 PM, I've been doing this thing on clubhouse, which if if you have a, if you have a login to clubhouse and you're, you're part of the club, I guess, um, we've been doing this thing called the boiler room. Basically, I'm turning the tables on on the fans. Rather than me pitching you a stock or an investment, I have the crowd pitching stocks to me. And it's been so much fun. My friend Jason Rasnick, who's, the, I guess, the, the king of Benzinga. I don't know if he's the CEO. I don't know what his title is. Chairman, founder. Um, me and Rasnick jump into the room at 3 p.m. Eastern on Clubhouse it's called the Boiler Room. You could look it up by following me at Downtown J Brown on Clubhouse. Um, but we're having a lot of fun doing it. We're doing it every week, so it's five or five to seven minute pitches and back and forths with people telling me about their favorite stocks, why they're buying them, and I try to ask smart questions. Raznik asks questions, and we're having a lot of fun doing that. So look for that, and let's go right to Mark Fisher and Joe Terranova. 
The Compound Show with Downtown Josh Brown. How you don't know what the baddest financial podcast on Wall Street. And we're helping millions of people to make smart decisions, grow wealth, and secure the bag. Welcome to The Compound Show with Downtown Josh Brown. Josh is the CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Josh or any podcast guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. The Compound Show. All right, so we are here with uh, some South Shore Long Island All-Stars today. Uh, Joe Terranova is with me. You guys know Joe. He's been on the program many times already. And uh, we've got a legend with us today. Mr. Mark Fisher is here. One of the most, I think, legendary traders that I've ever met. And you guys have seen him on our CNBC show before the halftime report. But Joe and Mark go way back. And Mark's agreed to come on and tell us what's going on in futures markets and a whole bunch of other stuff that he's working on. So we're really excited to have you here. What's up, man? I wouldn't do this for most people except for you and Joe because I had to rechain my five-year-old's Little League practice, which is sacred, but I did it for you and Joe anytime, so that's where we are. All right, so we're all, we're all very fortunate today. Hey, Joe, what's going on, man? I, I just wanted to get you know basically 20 seconds of word in uh, before you guys begin because I know I'm not going to be able to say anything for the next however long we do this, but I take no responsibility for what is about to unfold. I want everyone to know that going into this. Okay, go ahead. Josh, I got to tell you one thing before we get started. Joe <laughs> used to be my co-coach with my younger kids, in ba- my older kids in baseball, and he's responsible for three kids getting broken noses and having to take one. Which hospital did Michael Levy go to? Thanks, Franklin General. Right, you took him. Okay, anyway, let's go. So we're starting this, so we're starting this on an upbeat note. Hey, Mark, I... I didn't realize that you were involved with um, Island Gardens and the Lightning. Yes. I didn't. Okay, are you the founder of that or? No. What happened was Island Garden, which is run by Jim Fox, who does a tremendous job there. Yeah. In fact, I gave up my ownership this, this year in the end of the last year for after being involved for 20 years. But I'm still very involved with the Lightning. And we basically have through the Lightning program at Island Garden and through all that we've gotten about 500 and. 75 boys and girls full or partial scholarships that have come out of Island Garden. And the elite program, which is run under the New York Lightning, is run by two of my ex-employees at Joe Train, Dana Dingle, who is the power forward for UMass on John Calipari's Final Four team, and Shandu McNeil, who is a four-year starter and captain for four years at St. Bonaventure. And we've had a ton of kids go through our program. We've got a lot of kids coming up. We started the same thing in Miami. Uh, run by Gary DeCesar now, who Joe will tell you about. That's a whole story for another time. And if you can't own an NBA team, this is the next best thing. This is the best way to give back. Yeah, so this is AAU basketball. And my kids' games are at Island. We play against three different Lightning teams. Uh, my my kids on a level-up squad. And uh, they're 12U uh, level-up. And we play a bunch of Lightning teams every week. We're pretty much at Island Garden every weekend. Well, we're- it's more than an AU program because we what we try to do is help kids help themselves and obviously help a lot of kids get out of trouble. Joe would tell you about all the trips you used to take with Corey Fisher and Spreewell. I'll say these names. He'll be like, whatever. Corey Fisher, we had him since he was in second grade. He was literally the best player in the country from fourth grade to seventh grade. He didn't really grow enough. He played for Villanova. He was a four-year All-American. He was a McDonald's All-American. Majestic Map, who worked for me for 20 years, who was a McDonald's All-American, who went to UVA. Uh, Julius Hodge, Francisco Garcia, 
Aiden and I can we, the names go on and on, but really it, it brings a warm spot to my heart because this is the best way of actually giving back, but at the same time being involved. Right, Joe? Would you agree yeah. with that? Char- you get left out Charlton Clark. Charlton Car- Clark. Oh, my Carmelo God. Travieso. But right. Josh, what, what the pleasure for me was training them in the summer intern program. And you know what? You know what's funny? And, and Mark, there's no one better at financial literacy than what Josh does and, and his team at Riddles. But you have all these people that have created this illusion on Wall Street, which I saw Mark years ago break those walls down. There, there, there are no illusions with Wall Street. And we would basically bring these interns in, Josh, and they got it. They were kids that you instructed them, and all you need to do was just point them in the direction, give them the information, and they got it. They understood. And like that's they saw the, the, they saw the game like they got quickly. It. Right. Right. It's almost like they could see the court, you know, how they, yeah, you yeah. know, they, they would know where the open pass was. Yeah, court vision. The, Josh, the best story that we have in the last three years, not the, the best person, we, that, that thing is Dana Dingle, his son Jordan, who was gotten, who got about 40 to 50 college scholarship offers to go to mid majors and some high majors. One of the best kids you're ever going to want to meet, stand up person, stand up character. And we convinced him that he should do more than just become a basketball player. And he, w- he went to University of Pennsylvania last year as a freshman, w- went to Wharton. His first game on TV on ESPN, they played Alabama. They were 19-point underdogs at Alabama. Penn won. Jordan had 27. He was rookie of the year wow. in the Ivy League. Okay. For, uh, consensus top 28, I think it was, all, all freshmen in the country. And now because of the program, I mean, unfortunately, the Ivy League didn't play basketball this season. But he's gotten job offers for the summer, and he's well on his way to not only fulfilling his basketball dreams, but off the court, you know, he's going to be a superstar on Wall Street in the next ten years. I'm sure. That's awesome. That must be that must be a lot of fun to watch these kids from a young age become basketball players, but then also become professionals. That must and be also like- and also how to deal with life. You know, it's not just about basketball life. I mean, one of the things that Joe used to do. We used to do together at our internship programs. We used to take the first 20 kids that were over 18 years old, the first day of the internship program. We say, here's the deal. Everyone's got to go to Chicago. We'll get you the money. Whoever comes back first with the, what was it, that pizza from someplace wins, you know, <laughs> wins $5,000. And you'd have these kids literally have to figure out how to get to Chicago and back and be back in the office by six o'clock in the afternoon. And Joe and I used to figure out who was going to be the one that would come back and always be somebody else. Right, Joe? Yep. Josh, this time last year, I go up to Mount St. Michael to watch Michael O'Connell. You know Michael O'Connell. He went to Chaminade. He now plays point guard for Stanford. He's starting as a freshman. He's a Long Island kid. So we go to watch is Tim. Mike. Is that Tim's kid? Tim's son. So we go okay. to watch Michael. His other son played at St. John's. We go to watch Michael at Mount St. Michael Gym. Uh, and I've got my middle son, Tanner, with me. And we're walking. And who comes over to say hello? John Calipari. Oh, wow. What's he doing there? John, so John's, you know, scouting the game. It was it was a really really good uh, a tournament, and you know John's talking to me about everything. And Tanner's, you know, looking at me. And John's talking to me about Mark and CNBC and Scott Wapner and you and you know following the markets. And Tanner basically gets tongue tied, and, and Tanner walks away, and he's like, "How do you know him?" And I'm like, "Well, in 1998, 1999, John was coaching." in Island Garden clinics during the NBA lockout. And my son's looking at me like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Wait, so let's wait. So let's back up 
because I want people to have a better idea, Mark, of of what your firm is and what you guys do. And then we'll we'll get into some market stuff. But like tell us tell us like where you began your story and then I want Joe to chime in with how he was kind of mentored by you and and taken under your wing. So basically uh, I was fortunate enough that my one of my neighbors was was on the Kamai's exchange and I used to see him come home with nicer, nicer cars. And yeah. somehow I just cutting to the chase, I just forced myself in and I became and I worked for them as a runner. And you started at uh, 12 years old. Is that right? Yep. 12. And how did you how did you get there? With him, I used to take, you know, that's how I got with him. I was on the, the old commodities exchange floor, then the new commodities exchange floor. Oh, wow. Then I went to Wharton, and then I was I was really supposed to go to Brad Sixer Med School, but I went to Wharton instead, and I did my thesis paper on a trading model called ACD, which was the initial, original system that we still use today. I paid a girl's tuition, Rhonda, who Joe knows, to go to school and take all the notes. I used to come down and take all the tests. I graduated summer cum laude, undergrad and grad. When I wasn't there the last year and a half, I was on the floor. And I met Joe because Joe was working. I, you know, obviously, I'm not in the best, how should I say this, physical shape. Okay, let me stop you. Let me tell the story. Can I tell the story? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, I'm drinking a soda, by the way. I don't care. You, Joe. you can drink the soda. So, so, Josh, I go the traditional route after, you know, graduating from college. I get a job at J.P. Morgan, Swiss Banking Corp., which I don't know if you remember that. Bonuses come out. Our desk crushes it. I'm on. Uh, a government securities desk. What is this, get, 90, 92? What is this? This is 1989, 90. Okay. So, you know, our our desk crushes it, right? And we get our bonuses. And, and my bonus is literally less than 1% of what I know our desk generated. Guy puts his arm around my shoulder. We're on the trading floor at 222 Broadway. He says, you see all the way over there? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, all the way over there. The amount that you guys made on your desk, someone lost. And that's why your bonus is no good. At that moment, that moment, I knew I was done. So what I did was I grew up in Valley Stream, had a lot of friends in Hewlett. One of my closest friends growing up was Rob Weiss. If you ever saw the movie Amongst Friends, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rob is becoming five, incredibly- five Towns, legendary film. Great movie. So, so Rob was, was just so entrepreneurial and he kind of taught me that along the way. So we had some friends- and we were going to open this gym. Remember Head to Toe Fitness, Mark? Okay, with Brian. Right. So we opened this gym. I was behind the scenes as, you know, kind of, I put my money and I knew we were all going to lose my money. And in was the gym on, on Peninsula Boulevard? It was on Broadway. On Montana's? On Broadway. On Broadway. On, right. On right. right all right. So all right. Here, here comes Mark, <laughs> arguably the most inflexible human being I have ever met in my life. Okay. okay. We try. We try I still and, am. Like, I still am. I still am. We try and stretch Mark, and he's like awful. All right. So the Super Bowl is about to be played. Uh, Mark, I don't know if you remember. So it's the Giants and Buffalo. And Mark tells me, Buffalo is going to crush the Giants. The trend is your friend. Do you remember that? Yes. And I said, Mark, I played football. My, you know, I've been around football my whole life. The Giants going to win the game. Defense is going to win. Long story short, if I remember correctly, you traded the game. I'm not going to reveal the name of the Wall Street guys, but this is when you were actually trading. Oh, yeah, yeah. We were trading play-by-play. Play-by-play. I won't say who it was. Mark does well, comes back to me, says, hey, you want a job on the commodities exchange? I go out, go down the first day, Josh, see the energy, see where you own your 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 performance. At the end, Mark always used to say at the end of the day, you get a report card. You own your performance. Are you, on, said, the New York, are you on the New York Merck? 
Like, yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, okay. Uh, so I go down there. I say, sign me up. This is for me. Mark had the gold badge, and there were a couple of guys. It was uh, Ski from Goldman Sachs. He had the gold badge. A few guys had a gold badge. So, Josh, what that meant was you could go and trade on any of the exchanges because there were multiple exchanges down there. And that's basically what I did from that moment on. Um, I basically was half my audience doesn't even know that there even was a New York Merc. This is like what Chicago had and it's, and it's the pits. It's like trading the futures, trading commodities, trading live money, um, in person, which is like a, a dying or lost art. But like, that was the thing back then. That, that was the thing. And there's three names that, you know, when I went down there, they were on the floor trading. Gary Cohn was in the metals pit, right, Mark? Yep. Yes. Was it wasn't blank fine? Uh, no commodities no. trader. No. Okay. No, he wasn't in the pit. Lindsay Lowen's father was trading <laughs> down there. Yeah. Mike Michael from that's from my town from Merrick. Yeah, yes. Okay. Right. And if you know the builders in the Hamptons, Joe Farrell was down there as well, right, Mark? Yeah. Paul Jones was down there. Oh wow. So here's where I want to go with this. What's different? in futures markets and trading in general, you know, then versus now. And Mark, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, where you sit in the, in the current markets and, and, and what the firm does and what your role is right now. Okay, so my role really hasn't traded, has changed. We still trade proprietarily. We have about 40, 40 uh, individuals that trade with us. We trade everything from crude oil to power markets to securities. And basically... I trade a lot when they're, when I think there's a special situation. Otherwise, I'm like a fire chief, Josh. What do I do? If you're one of the guys who trades with us, if you're doing well, the fire, the fire chief doesn't come to you and say, Josh, congratulations, your stove works, the alarm's yeah. working. They leave you alone, right? right? All that ends up happening is when trouble brews, my job is to yank the hell out of you and cut you off before you cut yourself off. And okay. obviously also, sometimes... You need a help. You need a push. You need a little push. Sometimes you need an emotional push. I've been to more psychiatrists with traders than you can even imagine. Right, right, Joe? I've been yep. to people therapy sessions with traders. It, the craziest things. But that's my role. Okay. And it, it helps me. I make money. I help them. And that's what we do. The thing that's changed is when the market's traded on the floor, and there were a lot of negatives to the floor and a lot of positives to the floor, the disintermediation to trade was a lot bigger, which means the speed of execution now is so fast, so much faster. And so I would argue worse that because of this, what happens today could never happen back then. If Josh, you wanted to put an order into buy crude oil, you would call your broker up. He would then call the floor. He would give a slip to the clerk. The clerk would give it to the broker. It would take what would seem like forever. Okay. Just like if you would want to buy a house, if you want to buy a house, why, why, is the housing, why didn't houses go up and down in value? Because you got to go ahead, hire a broker. You got to do an inspection. Mortgage, title, right, the whole thing. It takes forever. Think about yeah. if you could just go ahead and press a button and sell short or increase the value of Joe's house. What would happen right. to the housing market, right? So, yeah. so what's happened because of the speed is why May crude went negative last year, right, to some degree, is why all these cryptocurrencies go crazy. Because if there was, well, if there was, Go ahead. If, if there was more, I, I hung up. But wait, hold on. Let me see what this guy wants. This could be a problem. <laughs> Good time. Yep. What's the matter? You're on camera. Go. <laughs> okay, do it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Everyone, so, so anyway, the point being, 
everything's everything now is so much faster. And because of that, people don't have time to react. My thinking is if that if you just slow everything down a little bit, okay, it'll number one, even the playing field out, level the playing field out, and you won't have such crazy volatility that you have. Right? In what would have happened? What would have happened if coronavirus pandemic had occurred in nineteen ninety instead of two thousand twenty? So we have computers, we have phones, we don't have high frequency trades pouring in from all over the globe. Arguably, you, you make the point, you probably don't go negative on crude because people have more time to stop and think about, wait a minute, there's got to be somebody willing to take delivery. No. What would happen is the floor committee would have stopped the market. Okay. Right? It just it stopped instead of all these different things that happened. You know, I mean, I mean, what happened in power two weeks ago? I mean, think about this energy, I, you know. People don't feel energy to be the most volatile market. But you think about it. One market has gone from $20 to negative 40 in one day. And one market has gone from $50 to 9,000 in four days. Power right. and crude oil, right? I mean, that's, that makes anything look crazy. But again, I think slowing everything down, especially in times of turmoil or volatility, would help every market. How do you do that? Is it, is it rules? What's the way to make it make things the way that you think they should be? Okay. The exchanges have, have the ability and the mechanism to do it if they want to. It's called a throttle. You just throttle the market. So it's not a halt. No, it's a throttle. It just slows okay. everything down. You know, listen, Josh, I don't know what goes on in your house, but in my house, whenever, you know, my wife- I get or, throttled every night. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You know the deal. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not right? doing anything. Right? right. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And, it, yeah. you know, and when, you, when you get with your kids, all right, let's just all take a little, let's all take a break. Yeah. Right. Right. Let's just slow down. I mean, you never win an argument, but at least you got to. Right. That's exactly what the markets need psychologically. And that basic principle is missing. And, And to argue it, I really think that it really you wouldn't lose much volume. I think you'd have more volume trade because people would have more confidence in what's going on. So what's the counter argument to that? Because I feel like people probably made a lot of money when the the energy, the electricity markets went haywire there's an opportunity to fade that, you know, it's not going to last forever. So like, isn't that the other side? You couldn't fade that, by the way, that was the one where you couldn't fade because that the power market is set by ERCOT. It's not by speculators. It's not by you and me. So okay. what we're trading is just what we think ERCOT's going to come out for the power, but ERCOT sets the power and there were daily contracts. So each day would expire. So for instance, two weeks ago, one day expired at 9,000, $9,000 per kilowatt hour. Right. And the next day kilowatt was trading $25. So it wasn't yeah. like you couldn't get short. It was no like, you know, for the next day. I mean, the contract could, just expires each day. The contract expires. Exactly. So who loses on that when when the electricity market goes that way? The consumer who pays that end price, the consumer, unless they locked in prices. Okay? OK, the utilities that hedged against power that they were producing that couldn't produce the power. So basically think about it, if you're a gen, a gen operator who produces power every day, and you know what you can produce and you sell short futures to lock in the price and then you can't deliver on your power. Well, now you're short in a market you can't even get out of. Right. Did things go quite as as haywire doing Sandy or was this the wildest thing you've ever seen in that? I don't know that market at all. No, that was I mean, there's been a lot of crazy things that was. That was in the top five. I, I think, Mark, the example was Katrina. So, Josh, we, we were able to price and transact largely with the floor being the mechanism in which we did it during Katrina. The volatility was extreme for the better part of 
90 to 120 days, somewhat similar to what you've been experiencing in the energy markets, in particular in Q2 of 2020. Would you agree with that, Mark? Yeah, I think so. They, they seem to be going away from the direction that you think they should. No, they're, they're going fast. And, and it's fine to go fast as long as everything is under control. But the markets need a fire chief, not me, but to just say, okay, that everything's too volatile. Let's just slow down. Just like at home, Josh, take a deep breath, right? Not shut them off and not a circuit breaker. Just make it disintermediate the markets, make it slower. That people think. I, yeah, about- I guess from my perspective, when I, when I think about futures, I understand the benefits of liquidity and speed and all these things. Um, but it almost feels like if you're about to make a decision, long or short, any commodity or futures contract. Or stock. What, what would be the difference if it took two minutes instead of two seconds other than a speed advantage against another trader? I, I think two minutes is obviously a lifetime, maybe too long. But, you know, you know, it's not even two seconds. It's a millisecond. Yeah. Right. I mean, I don't know if you guys can see if I bang the table. In that period of time, 8,000 transactions took place. There's also a difference in terms of the ability to study leverage. And leverage is the word that we haven't introduced here. But when you're transacting so quickly, you don't have time to risk manage leverage. When there is a longer period between your transaction, you could actually look at leverage and understand what that leverage exposure is. Josh, I could say one thing. I, I got to segue for one second because you know that's what I do best. There could be a lot of people that consider themselves to be risk managers. I consider myself to be a risk manager. There was never a better risk manager than Joe T. Because anyone that could deal with the psychosis that went on in natural gas when it was crazy with Eric Bowling, right? Eric used to work with us, right, Joe? The, yep. I don't know how Joe's even still here today because what went on and what he had to deal with. Remember, this is all not electronic. This is all mechanical. Like, what is this? When it went from two to thirteen? Oh is this no, Amaran thing, or this it was is earlier. Every day, every day was another circus. But all of all of it, Josh, and and I think this is very important to understand, is that everything that we did was following a system, and I think that's different than what people interpret or they intuitively believe. I think they believe that when they look at someone like Mark, Mark's just sitting there and making decisions and saying, "Oh." My stomach feels like I should do this, or my stomach feels like I should do that, or the same thing for myself. That's not no. what at all was done. In fact, when I went down there in 1990, you know the first thing I did? I learned three letters, Josh. You know what they were? ACD. So ACD is the foundation. There was a pyramid, Mark. Do you remember? Yep, 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 yep. That was the that was the foundation of Mark's rules based approach towards opening ranges and and closing ranges and things like pivots and utilizing moving averages. We were using moving average fake outs before people were even talking so about the reason moving why, averages. Yeah, the reason why people think it's all gut instinct. Most people's initial exposure to anything to do with commodities is trading places, and then that YouTube clip of Paul Tudor Jones like on a giant fucking 80s cell phone. He's going, get me in. No, get me out. And I think he's tried for years to get that clip removed from the earth. But that's what people think. But let me give you two improvements that can be made to the market. And I've been arguing them with a lot of different people for the last year about them. The first one is to help markets out, there should be what I call an RFQ market, a request for quote market. That's transparent to everybody. What do I mean? Okay, so I could go ahead. And if I want to buy 
half a million shares of stock or a million shares of stock, or I want to buy 2,000 DS23 crude futures. I should be able to go ahead. I'm looking for a market in 2,000 December 23 crude, or I'm looking for a market in, in a million IBM. And everybody who could trade that size, who could trade the size of the order, sees it and gets to react to it. Okay, so not just four or five people, but everybody in the market sees that, like an auction, market, an auction, and that block auction will allow transparency. So people that that have the the bandwidth and the and the capital can now trade with anybody anonymously. That's the first thing. The second thing is, and and I know people may disagree about this, is I don't like the end of day auction process that happens on the securities exchanges. And I happen to like how the, how the fight, how the futures exchanges handle it. If I want to go ahead and buy 200 crude oil at the end of the day, and I want to buy, you know, the Selman price, I put an order on the trading at Selman and I buy 200 crude or I might sell 500 crude or buy corn or sell corn. It's easy. But if I want to go ahead and buy 600,000 shares of IBM in the closing print, John Q public doesn't see it. The only people that see that are the four. And if you're if you're enabled for certain, there should be a, a mechanism in place so that everyone can see, OK, there's 200,000 to 2 million shares of Tesla to buy. There's 6 million shares of them to sell. And everyone can make independent decisions with the same amount of information and can trade against it. And the, and the current securities markets lack that. And I don't understand why. Do you think that that would really have a big impact on John Q. Public's ability to manage his or her retirement portfolio? Or is that... Maybe not even necessary. Like, I don't think it's for the retirement portfolio, but for the active traders that they're out in the world today, which is now what is 20 million, Joe. How many people are trading a day in this country? Well, now it's big again. Too many. It, it, it went away and now it's as big as it's ever been. Okay. So, whatever number of people they're are all back. Why can't they all back? <laughs> they, are, they are all back. It's their, this time it's their kids. But, Josh, why should it be that that information should not be transparent to everybody? Why should it be when Tesla got rebalanced that day into the, into the S&P 500? Why shouldn't everyone have seen what was going on in terms of the, of the order flow there? Why only certain people see it? Well, the new traders, they're not even trading with the market. They're trading with the house. They're trading an inside market. They have principles inside the house selling them stocks that they're buying. They don't even see the market quote and they don't, they're kids. They don't give a shit. They're buying $80 worth of Tesla. So you could show them a price improvement of, of a nickel and they wouldn't even notice. Right. So I think that's the, been the rationale for a lot of this stuff. That, that's my view about the securities markets. Before you ask me, I'll tell you what, I, what I think is going to happen to Bitcoin in a perverse way. Bitcoin could even get even more expensive than why people think. Because I think that eventually, you know how New York State wants to basically now have gaming everywhere, and because they need every, marijuana legal, because everyone needs the revenue, right? But if Bitcoin production is so energy inefficient, you're going to see a, a some type of carbon tax on the production of, of, of all these cryptos, right? And that carbon tax is going to be waylaid onto the buyer of the thing, which is in, everyone thinks well that. That's going to affect crypto. I think, well, it's going to make it even so more happy expensive. You sa- I'm so happy you said that. So what I wanted to ask you, I was going to ask you about Bitcoin and energy separately, but let me ask you always one question. One of the things perversely that that happened with uh, some of the Biden administration proposals and some of the things that they want to do immediately, shutting down energy production on federal lands and uh, stopping some offshore stuff and cracking down on a lot of the things that the Trump administration was like, Go ahead and do. 
perversely, that actually makes the price of oil higher, which leads to increased investment. So if you were to have a carbon tax on something like Bitcoin mining, which seems like it seems like most of Congress doesn't even know what Bitcoin is yet. So probably probably get away with without that. But yes, that kind of thing produces scarcity. It doesn't dampen the enthusiasm right. for production. Exactly. Okay. So I wanted to ask you one of the new uh, concepts going around these days amongst asset allocators is that Bitcoin is the new gold. It's taken the place of gold. Gold no longer has a purpose in in a portfolio because you get all the same benefit with Bitcoin, but it's also portable. Gold's not. I find it hard to buy buy into that argument over the long term, but I understand over the short term that a lot of people are coming around to it. I wanted to ask what your thoughts were, given how how long of an experience you've had trading things like silver and gold. I think that what's going to happen, because the argument against gold is that you can't take gold into a store and chop off a little piece to buy something, although or really flee the, a or flee a country with it, or, right? Or flee a country with it, right? So, I think that. There's going to be a you know a group of people that are enamored with with um, crypto, and I think that population is growing every day. I think there's a lot of people that still gold, silver, copper. I don't know this you know again platinum because of what's happening now with the um, you know with those uh, hydrogen cells, right? All those things will stay there. But I also think what's going to happen is someone's going to come up with some type of crypto that's going to be metals based, a gold based crypto. A, a copper-based crypto. I mean, I, I'm, I'm willing to tell you this because I'm not going to do it, but someone's going to come up with something that's going to have the best of both. So why, could, why couldn't State Street just take GLD and turn the shares into tokens? Like, if that's what we're talking about, is like people just want I think someone's going to uh, Josh, Josh, someone's going to do that. Okay. It should be you. You and Barry, yeah. go ahead. You, Barry, and Joe. <laughs> I just give me a royalty fee for you. Wait, and you could give me a royalty. You could send me a tuna fish sandwich once a week to Florida. Seriously, that's what should happen. Someone's right. going to do that because that combines the, bo- the best of both. Because you have like people that just they want to be involved in crypto. And then if you tell the gold people that, that are straddling the fence, hey, now you could have them both. Gosh, in one he's, writing, he's writing that idea down. He's no, writing I, I, that I, down. no, no. <laughs> I, but there's something about that. So the knock on crypto is no one can understand the tangible value behind the crypto, correct? Well, there isn't any. Okay, hold on. It's a commodity with no use. Okay, hold on. Okay, at the same time, everybody likes raising money in an ICO, crowdfunding way, right? Right, less regulation. When I grew up in the five towns near Joe, my dad was in the supermarket business. So I'm very familiar with coupons. You remember coupons? And sure. Like so about two and a half years ago, we started with this idea called Indicium, which is basically taking contingent value rights and making them into contingent product rights. So what we did is I've, I probably invested in like 40 different biotechs. And I'm happy to say that, okay, I've made a lot of money in the last couple of years, but I could have done just as well without all the ups and downs by putting it into securities. But the point being is there has to be a better solution to, fi- to fund biotech than what's gone on. And what I think is going to happen is we- we've come up with this idea called contingent product, product rights, which are nothing more. Hey, you sent me that link. I still don't have a f-ing clue what that means. Right. You got to like really like explain it. Explain it. Well, really, what the- all that is is basically saying, okay, Josh, here's what we're going to do. Okay. You're a drug manufacturer. You need to raise $40 million. Okay. In return, instead of giving away equity, because the more equity you give away. But I'm tiny. I don't have any drugs on the market. Right. I have an idea. Right. You have an, or, you, or you're in phase one. 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. Or, if, or if you're a small biotech, and if Josh, if you know a small biotech needs to raise money and their price is ten dollars, and you know they, they need to raise forty million, where's that stock ending up at? Two dollars, right? Because yeah. they do the down. First of all, but so the first thing is that, or you could go ahead and do the royalty route, right? Where you can give away percentage of the royalties. Either way, by issuing equity or by giving away royalties, in order, to, if your drug is successful, you have to price that drug at the yin yang in order to make everybody whole. Correct. Yeah, because you're either splitting it with Pfizer or you diluted the shit out of your yourself and, right. and your shareholders. Okay. So what's the third way? The third way is I give you $40 million okay. and you give me $40,000 that's called contingent product rights, CPRs, which means is if your drug gets approved by the FDA two, three, four, six years from now, I get X amount of rights to product, the cheapest form. You just print more medicine, okay? You just print more medicine, which I get the right to either sell on an exchange or if I'm a patient, I get to use. And you make the medicine at a much lower cost than right. what you're selling it for. Right, right. Because the, the last mile of printing the medicine is the cheapest part. Are you diluting your shareholders by doing that? No. Are you going ahead and giving away royalties? No. You're no. Giving away the, All right? the cost is in the R&D. Yes, exactly. Right. There's and no cost doing, in making more. Right. And so by, make, by giving away these contingent product rights, okay, everyone does better. The manufacturer, in our case, would have to, would have to cap his price. Okay, and sell it at a lower price. So every the society benefits. Well. I'll give you a perfect example, and I may be throwing someone under the bus, but it is what it is. We're on a podcast, right? Yeah, it's fine. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, which you know, which is right. a tremendous organization, yeah. went ahead about 10, 12 years ago and gave a ton of money away to a company that had a transformative drug for CF, and the drug has been a success. Okay, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has received in payments publicly. From the sale, whatever you, the foundation they took. So they took our money. We donate money to the foundation. They took our donation. Let's say I give it ten thousand, a thousand, and we get a write-off. And they gave it to, um, to this company. And the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has received back over four billion dollars for our donations. Four wow. billion minimum. It's more than that, but let's say it's four billion. The the problem with that is, you know what that drug. I mean, obviously, they help a lot of people and they, they subsidize people. You know what the average cost, I believe, the drug to be for a CF patient is this, uh, right now? I don't know. 500? On an annual basis, what? Oh, on annual? Yeah. 30,000. 30, uh, 30, 40? Keep going. Higher? Keep going. Come on. O- over 250,000. That's wild. Now, think about this. And also, think about this. When I made my donation to CF, I made a $1,000 donation. I got a $1,000 write-off, right? Yeah. Right? If I took my $1,000 and gave it to a manufacturer to create the same thing, and I get these rights to, these, to the drug, and they give me X amount of product, and then if, if God willing, the product succeeds, I donate those rights to the CF Foundation. My $1,000 donation is not going to be a charitable write-off of $25,000, right? Because I've gotten X amount of product, right? And, and the cost of the drug, because I haven't gotten any money, all I got was product. It's going to be much less. Mathematic has to be less. So because pay- all the, all the drug company wants is the funding cost for the drug, right? And and the person giving them the money can take the payment in kind, like in the right. drug exactly. that they end up producing. Right. And so what ends up happening is that if you and I, if you have less partners in a business, you could price things cheaper, right? Just make okay. just make sense, right? That's basically what it comes down to. Do you see a lot of a lot of the future funding of? Drugs from small drug I'm gonna, companies I'm gonna, going this I'm way? Gonna, I'm going to go out on a limb and tell you, Josh, in five to ten years, this is going to be the future of biotech. 
And I'll go further with you. Think about teaching hospitals. Let's take John Hopkins or Montefiore or whatever. Could it, can, I want to hire um, Joe Terranova to come work because he's got a great molecule, right? And I'm, you know, and I'm Montefiore. And Joe says, well, you know, I want to come, I'd rather come work for you than Big Pharma. But do you have $40 million to develop the drug? Montefiore doesn't have $40 million. So Joe's forced to go work for somebody, you know, for Big Pharma. Under what we're doing here, Montefiore can go out and raise the same $40 million by issuing these same contingent product rights saying, okay, we're going to give away these, these things in return for medicine, you know, in return for free product, right? And now every not-for-profit can now, you know where the Moderna drug came out of, Josh? It came out of UPenn. What did? The, com- the company itself was founded from, from there? The COVID drug that okay. modernism had came out of the labs of UPenn. But okay. UPenn couldn't go ahead and it didn't have the money or the, you know, at that point, the expertise to go ahead and develop it. Now UPenn, Hopkins, Mass General, anybody, University of Miami, can now go ahead using this formula, right? Issue the same contingent product rights in return for money and they'll develop their own drugs. I mean, obviously they're not going to distribute them or manufacture them. That's still going to be big pharma, but at least, the science of it doesn't have to be given. And you know, a not-for-profit doesn't have the same motivations and needs as, as a for-profit company does. But does the development of the drug, is that not enough? Meaning, do you need the big pharma partner to help you get the drug throughout the FDA approval process? No. In fact, it's just the opposite. You only okay. need them to manufacture it. To get through the approval, no, you don't need them. You wouldn't need them for the lab part. You wouldn't need them for the testing part. All you need is manufacturing, distributing, and marketing. Gotcha. So that's fascinating. So you're doing that with uh, with investors or you're doing that on behalf of yourself? We've, we started this two and a half years ago. We're about to do our first one. And I'm, I'm happy to say this, you know, everything Joe and I have done is always, you know, you buy this, you sell this, you make money, you lose money, blah, blah, blah. Here we're really impacting people's lives. Because my point is, how do we get more drugs to market in a faster place, more efficiently, still incentivize people to do it, and make sure that the U.S. is the low-cost place to do it, not the high-cost place for medication. And that's really what it comes down to with that. So it se- you seem like the kind of person that when you get passionate about something, you seem to go all in. Like you got passionate about youth basketball, and you ended up owning like one of the preeminent organizations. Um, so now it sounds like this is something that's really caught your attention, and you don't seem like the kind of person who could dabble. No, I don't. I don't. I can't dabble. I can't dabble. <laughs> okay. Joe, okay. That, what's, wait, if you're from the five towns and you're successful, you don't dabble. It's, all, right. it's one way. That, you know that, right? That's right. Hey, let's clear this up once and for all, by the way. This is an ongoing debate, and I live 10 minutes away from the five towns. Right. What are they? Is Cedarhurst, Hewlett, Lawrence. What are the other two? Woodmere. Okay. That's its own town? That's not part of Hewlett? No. Cedarhurst, Inwood, Hewlett, Woodmere, Lawrence. Oh, Inwood. Okay. Inwood. Right. Okay. And the last thing I wanted to say, which is why I really want to come on also, is because <laughs> my best traders have come from my internship program. Yes. I'm okay. hoping your podcast. We're about to start something called the MBF's Risk Championship Series. I don't know how we're doing it yet. I haven't figured it all out. I haven't mapped it out. But I need to bring in new blood. And the okay. best way to bring in new blood to trade, I don't care what they trade. I don't care if it's insect racing. I don't care if it's, I don't care if it's crude oil. I don't care if it's crypto. I don't care if it's stocks. As long as it's ethical and legal, that's, that's all I care about. But to that point, and, and this is, I'll ask both you and Josh, why does everyone have this perception that the crypto craze, the Reddit craze, the Robin Hood craze is bad. I go to a conference, I look around the room, everyone in the room is old. We need a younger generation to actually be interested in the financial services industry. But that's not financial services industry. They're not, they're not investing. 
what I want to do is I want to take the five best crypto traders who train small amounts of money, educate them in terms of risk management tools so that they're not going all in for one thing, but use their innate skills. You and I know, Joe, in 10 minutes, we could tell if someone's going to be successful or not, right? It, it, how many things, you know, there's four steps to the decision-making process, accumulating data, right? Analyzing it, deciding, implementing. The faster you are at that with a risk-based system and with a risk management skills, the better of a trader you're going to be. How are you going to find these people and how are you going to sort through them to find like who you're looking for? I'm great, always, great question. I mean, Josh, I just, that's what I'm on. I figured, I figured your podcast, from your podcast, you're going to get 150 people saying, I want to go work for Fisher. Hook me Did up. I have the best idea for you ever. That oh, you can not even imagine. The best we idea did- ever. Uh, Batnick and uh, Ben and, and I did during the month of January, we, we did this thing, Beat the Compound, where it was three of us against anyone who wanted to enter. And we worked with this company, Wealthbase, that also runs a version of this for Fidelity. Right. It's the best trading simulator on earth. And it was free for people to come in and the leaderboard and you could see how they did their trades. So, no, so here's what I found. Wait, how'd you do? We, as, as a group, the three of us, on average, we beat the median player in the game. But I dragged the average way lower for, for our, our crew. We got bailed out because we started f***ing around with GameStop and uh, oh, AMC. Gosh. Of course okay. we did. Josh, what, we wanted, what I want to do is I'm going to take a bunch of traders who trade their own money. Not a lot of money. You I want, want them to, to be live money. I want, if it's just OPM money, if it's just other people's money, it doesn't work. But, I want them but to Mark, trade where own- do you find that smaller bunch from? I'm saying you need to, you need to sort thousands to get to 20. I'll figure that out. You know, like you said, I just gave, I gave you the solution. No, but we'll, let me we'll talk you, offline. But, but here's what I do. But what we need to do is I need them to trade their own pool of money. I need yes. to watch them on a 15 minute delay, whatever the case may be. And okay. then from that pool of, of psychopaths, pick the best hundred, put them in some kind of judgment series, bring that down and say, guess what, Josh, you're going to trade your money and I'm going to trade and you're going to trade my money four times as big as you trade your money. And once you get used to it and you're good at it, now you're going to go to eight times my money and I'm going to take you and you're going to take a percentage of my money, right? Of the PL for free, as long as you take risk in your own PL. And we're going to help you along, you know. What do you do with the, the diamond in the rough that you find out of this, out of this process? That's, what happens that, for them? That's how, that's how I make all the money. That's how they no, become. No, but so then you, then you hire them. Oh, they're, hire they're that's exactly. I want to hire my best traders. What came to this program? What Joe will tell you, we used to have this thing. We used to keep stats. And I would tell you that when we used to have, let's say, 125 traders, 40 people every Monday from the opening bell to one o'clock in the afternoon would lose money. And Joe and I finally figured out why are they losing money? Because they're unhappy at home, right? And, and they, right? so, so we would say to them, guess what? Guess what? We would pay them not to trade Monday mornings because we don't want them letting out their problems with their girlfriends, their wives. Okay. Their- so, Josh, let me put that in a language that, that everyone could understand. So what would happen? <laughs> it's true. It's true. Right? But what would happen is if they had a rules-based approach, right? Yeah. If they uh, systematically looked at, they analyzed risk, and once they understood what the risk was, they would accept the risk and they would go out and they transact on something, Right. So basically what they would do on Monday is that they would lose that discipline and they would lose that approach because they would kind of step away from the environment and be right. outside the game. And maybe, maybe they'd spend too much money. They don't the get weekend. their shit together until Tuesday or Wednesday. Right. 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 That's me. I get it. That's me. I don't, I schedule podcast interviews for Monday. You know what I mean? I got it. I got it. All right. But before we push out it, I got to ask one question. All right. If I could do this. Um, 
Joe, aren't you happy that my ADD hasn't kicked in altogether at this point? I should by this point, I figured I'd be off the stick. Go ahead, keep going. Jo- Josh's ADD is actually just as bad as yours. I've worked with oh, him yeah. on CNBC long enough to know. But all it's right, a so Long all, Island thing. It's in the water. We're we're all really good friends with Scott Wapner, so I don't think he's going to get upset by me saying this. But so Friday, I think it was Friday, I happened to watch Josh on CNBC, and Josh basically, perfectly, passionately said everything that I've been saying in my communication with advisors through Virtus, which is, why are we freaking out about inflation? Because that's like oh, the big thing right now, inflation. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was awesome. It was perfect. So you lived through real inflation, Mark. You traded inflation. Is this what we're trading now, the inflation that you traded? Not yet. What's the freak out about? You think it's going there, though? I don't know if it's going there because so many people, the only reason why I think it may not go there is because so many people think it's going there, right? I think that, you know, the debasement of currency has been going on forever. If, if you really think that inflation is only, you know, that's a whole other thing. Is inflation really only 1.6%? Where is there only 1.6% inflation? That's a We've bullshit had, number. It's that's totally a bullshit number. We've had yeah, yeah. 5 to 8% inflation in everything. We just had home prices go up 12% nationally in one year. It's not even in the calculation. Josh, when you when you go to 388 restaurant, you tell me right. the bills is come on. Come on, are you crazy? <laughs> well, 388's the the bill is whatever, you know, depend depends how well how well do you know the owner. The bill with Joe is pretty modest. Right, you know that. But yeah, I mean everything. So the whole thing's you know, this inflation thing is all how they come up with the owner's rental. I mean, the whole thing's a joke. They forfeit yeah. to whatever you want. But the thing that I concern myself is I think that more and more. Because of this dysfunction in our financial system, that China and the uh, yuan are becoming more and more, are going to become more and more significant to how, in terms of the, the reserve currency. And that really scares me to some degree. Well, that's their goal. And you look at how they handled the index companies, the way they, they got MSCI to triple and then ultimately quadruple the rate at which they hold Chinese securities in these indices. Right. Because China knows that's the route to get more dollars into the company's market caps, you got to get them bigger in the indices and make them part of the benchmark. They're doing that with the yuan. They're doing that with their stocks. Right. And yeah, I, I think I think you nailed it. And we think that we had some sort of a coup by getting them to open their markets up to us. What they're really doing is attracting foreign capital and setting their own rules for it. And uh, I agree. That's like a it's going to be a big issue for this generation and and the next generation. Um, the inflation thing's interesting. I wanted to ask you as a last question, if you were to tell people who are trying to trade for themselves, um, even if it, they're not doing it professionally, but they just want to like have a good basis for making decent decisions on a regular basis, what are like the top two or three principles that you would tell people, look, don't even start if you're not doing blank? The way I would answer that question is this. Before Waze and all these Google Maps – How'd you learn your way? How'd you learn your way around Long Island? You got, got lost your car. All the time. It got lost, right? And when you yeah. got lost, you figured out where to go, right? That's right. So I think what has to happen is for people, they have to put a small amount of money, a small amount of money into the market, not play money, real money, but nothing significant. And they need to get lost, right? And they need to figure out, okay, what am I doing? What am I doing wrong? Because right? if you get lost and you're willing to get lost enough, and you like getting lost, and you like the whole business, you will then, I don't care if you went to Harvard, Hopkins, Hofstra, 
or nowhere. You're going to figure it out if you have the passion. And the beauty, the greatest thing about the markets is you don't need to be 6'10 and weigh 250. You could be, I don't know, I'm 5'8 and a half. Maybe now. Maybe I'm, I don't know, shorter now. Right? You could be, you could be 5'2. You could, you don't need to be, you could be white, black, because it doesn't matter who you are. The markets don't care. Every day you get your report card, but you need to spend the time. People get the mistake, Josh, that what you do for a living or what Joe does for a living is, you know, doesn't take a lot of work. You guys work harder than anybody. No one sees that, right? They just see you on TV. Scott asks a question. You berate this guy. Joe sits there with his tie, you know, front front around. You know, it's all right. But they don't know how much work comes into that, right? You know, they see John, who I love John and Jerry the most, talking about another option monster trade. They, But no one sees how much work goes into any of this stuff. They just think about, you know, it's the same thing as an NBA player. They think Steph Curry just goes out there and scores 35. They have no idea the amount of hours he practices. Right. So you and you can't read about other people's mistakes. You have to make them. No, that's exactly, exactly right. You need to make your own mistakes so that you can figure out how to go. Agreed. So the best time to make those mistakes is when you're a kid. You could replace that money with yes. new income. Right. You know, l- learn to trade at, at 60 is not is not ideal. No. You know, right. learn, to, learn to trade at 12. Joe will tell you, my, my son and his friends, they used to play poker in my basement every Friday night to 4 a.m., right? And I used to sit there, and I would go downstairs and figure out, okay, who lost the most money? And I would try to lose the money back so the mother didn't call me that night and say, you know, my son lost $60 <laughs> at your house, right? I mean, this is what went on. Yeah. But that's the way you learn. Not at, right. not at 35 years old when you have a mortgage and a house payment to make, right? Yeah. You can't do that. Or when you're 65 living on a retirement income. No. When you're young, between the ages of 14 and 24 is the optimal zone. So then I think to just bring things full circle that, that maybe even if there are negatives, having 20 million new brokerage accounts opened up in the last year and having this influx of people in their 20s who are taking risks – having fun, learning by doing, losing money, you know, picking themselves back up. Maybe that's like the silver lining that comes from pandemic summer. Like it's hard to find one, but maybe that's one of them. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, listen, I know a lot of people that have suffered tremendously during, during this no crisis. Doubt. But again, I do think that there are a lot of people like I, like uh, that I know who have learned, who are learning, not learned. Because remember, the one thing, the good thing about what we do is every day I learn. I learned what not to do, what to do. But I think, you know, you've hit it on the nailhead. You need to make your own mistakes and learn from your not own mistakes. Not listen to me or Joe or you. You got to do it by let us help you, but you got to learn your own way. You got to find your own path. I agree with that. Mark, Joe, I want to thank you guys so much for coming on. Uh, Joe, you did get a couple of sentences in and they were very, they were, they were impactful. Uh, they were. Mark, you're Mark, you're the man. Josh, look about look how you and I dressed. And he's still in the same tie, the same shirt, the same. You know, he, we looks, gotta, go, he Josh, looks good though. He, looks he does good, look though. good. Josh, here's yeah, what my hair's growing back. Josh, when's the next time you two are gonna be on CNBC together? I don't know. This week, probably. Whenever you're on CBC together, you, you got to tell me, Joe, we want you to just get up and loosen up. Just roll him around <laughs> and show him. Because he's a great athlete also. Although he did lose to me in a 50-yard dash about 15 years ago. He won him. Nah, Run we that one him. again. Try that one again. <laughs> he did. <laughs> hey, Mark, where do, we, where do we send people to either learn more about the trading challenge, if that's up yet, or like, can they subscribe to something where you're putting out alerts of what you're up to or no, not really? Not yet. But when we do, we'll let you know. But your viewership and yeah. would be a perfect audience for what we're trying to get. All right. So you guys will let me know when there's like a landing page for this. Yes, and yes, I'll, yes. I'll, make sh- I'll make sure to get it out. When do we get the invite to come back again? 
what? Come back on the show. I'll see you guys yeah. tomorrow. Come back. Same on time. The show. You can't. It's not Monday. It's next Monday. This is the off day. I got to go. Oh, Goodbye. Man. All right. Bye, guys. Good to see you. Thanks for listening. Check us out at thecompoundnews.com for daily investing and market insights. You can watch all of our videos at youtube.com slash thecompoundrwm. Talk to you next week.